the Money Metals Midweek Memo. News and commentary relating to sound money, the precious metals markets, and the economy. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. So back in the day, I drove an old Plymouth Neon. And if you had ever seen me driving around town in that car, you would have thought it was just fine. I mean, it looked fine. It sounded fine. It got me from here to there. But let me tell you, that car was not fine. In fact, my old Neon had a very specific problem for quite a long time. The radiator fan didn't work. Now, surprisingly, this wasn't really an issue most of the time. As long as the car was moving, the airflow cooled the engine just fine. Even in traffic, it wasn't generally problematic. I mean, yeah, the engine temperature would creep up a little bit at stoplights, especially if you got those you know, too light delays or something. But as soon as I got the car up to speed, the engine temperature would cool right back down. But here's the rub. If I ever found myself in a traffic jam, well, then I had a problem. And there were more than a few white-knuckled trips hoping that the traffic would break before the car overheated. And I'm not going to lie, I ended up on the side of the road waiting for the engine to cool down more than once. At some point, I discovered I could delay the overheating by actually running the car's heater. It served as an engine cooling process. Let me tell you, that was fun on a hot summer day in Tampa. Here's the thing. I was in school at the time. I didn't have much money. So, I was pretty content to drive around with a broken radiator fan. Like I said, on the surface, everything looked fine. As far as most people were concerned, that neon was reliable transportation. But of course, it wasn't fine, right? It was a ticking time bomb. It was badly broken. It didn't work right. The notion that this car was fine was nothing but an illusion. And that's pretty much like the U.S. economy. I mean, everything looks fine, right? If you just take the data at face value, the economy seems to be basically plugging along. GDP growth looks fine. The job numbers look fine. The stock market looks great. CPI seems to be coming down. Everybody is convinced that the Federal Reserve threaded the needle, it raised interest rates, it stuffed the inflation genie back in the bottle, and now it is guiding the economy to a soft landing. We're going to get interest rate relief later this year, we're not going to have a deep recession, and everything is going to be great. Except it's not. All you got to do is start poking around under the hood, and it's pretty clear that the economy is a mess. All you have to do is start driving that bad boy under less than ideal conditions, and you're going to start stumbling upon the problems. The thing is, a broken economy can limp along for a long time before things really go south. I mean, I was fine in that old neon until I wasn't. This economy is fine with 5.5% interest rates and massive levels of debt until it's not. 
As I said, you can see the problems if you look close enough. Instead of just reflexively believing the headlines, parse out the data a little bit. Let's consider the jobs numbers. We got the December non-farm payroll data last week, and if you read the headlines, you know that the report was considered pretty darn good. For December, the BLS reported 216,000 new jobs, and that was far higher than the 170,000 new jobs everybody was projecting. Here's the thing. We've seen this song and dance before, over and over and over again. The song and dance goes like this. Every month, we get a strong non-farm payroll report with a big headline number. The mainstream financial reporters take to the airwaves. They tell us this means the economy is still strong. It's plugging along. And by the way, this is kind of bad news because if people have jobs, that means we're going to have price inflation because, well, we live in this bizarro world where working makes inflation, which it doesn't, of course. So, Every month, that's the reporting we get. And then the markets react. We get a big, a big stock market drop. We get a spike in dollar strength. We end up with a sell-off in gold. All of this in anticipation that the Federal Reserve is going to respond to this strong labor market, and by proxy, the strong economy, by leaving interest rates higher for longer. And nobody wants interest rates to be higher for longer. You know, it's kind of weird if you really think about it, right? Good economic news is now considered bad economic news. I mean, typically, you would think a bunch of new jobs in the economy, that's a good thing, right? But no, not in a world where the economy is only a function of monetary policy, not actual economic fundamentals. We don't think about things like, you know, jobs and productivity and producing stuff. No, people are just concerned about when are we going to get more easy money, low interest rates, money printing from the Fed. That is the mother's milk of this economy. I mean, that's the world we live in, right? A strong economy means interest rates stay higher for longer, and everybody knows that ultimately, this economy is dependent on easy money. It's all about the drug. So, we don't really want good economic news because, well, the Fed might respond by leaving interest rates up there, and everybody and their mother knows that deep down, this economy can't function in that high interest rate environment, not for the long haul. There's just too much debt. There are too many malinvestments. It's just like I knew that deep down at some point, a non-functioning radiator fan was going to leave me stranded on the side of the road. But again, the thing is, I could get away with it for a long time. So I did. Until I didn't. So, anyway, we got the great December jobs report. And then there's the part that nobody pays any attention to. The revisions. The BLS revised the November jobs number down to 173,000. It was originally reported as 199,000 new jobs. At the time, it was reported as slightly better than the 190,000 jobs that were being estimated. But we now know that the real number was a big miss. It wasn't slightly better than the estimate. It was way worse. 
And by the way, the BLS also revised October's number down to 105,000 new jobs created. That was originally reported as 150,000 new jobs created. So that's 71,000 jobs that just poof, disappeared with no fanfare because the BLS revised the numbers. And this is not an anomaly. The BLS has revised 10 of the last 11 non-farm payroll reports lower. By the way, the fantastic December jobs report really wasn't all that great when you dig into the numbers. A big chunk of those new jobs were government jobs, 52,000 to be exact. I'm sorry, but a bunch of new bureaucrats and government people getting paid with our tax money doing Lord knows what isn't really good news for the economy. And of course, there's also been a record 1.5 million job crash. That's in the number of full-time jobs. The labor force participation rate clicked downward. And we have more and more Americans who are working multiple jobs just trying to make ends meet, right? Because in these jobs numbers, every time some guy starts delivering pizza at night on top of his day job just to keep up with rising prices, that pizza delivery job counts as a, quote, new job. So this is not necessarily a sign of a great economy, right? It, it's a sign of struggle. People are struggling, but everybody just assumes that as long as people are spending money, it's all good. You know, it's the same thing with the consumer credit data. Every time the Fed releases the consumer credit data, I hear this spin. Wow, we have record levels of consumer debt. That's great news. Americans feel good enough to keep spending money. No, they're running up huge credit card balances trying to make ends meet because prices keep going up. I mean, it's not like you can stop buying groceries and paying rent, right? These, these pundits act like at some point people are just going to say, well, I'm going to quit spending money now. No, I mean, you, you got to keep spending money. And, and the thing is, you get all these retail sales numbers and, and, and all of this data. That's not inflation adjustment or it's not inflation adjusted, right? We're getting raw numbers. So what you're really seeing is, yeah, retail sales are going up because people are spending more and getting less. None of this is a sign of a robust economy if you really stop and consider what's going on. But, of course, you can spin it any way you want to. So, consumer debt. It actually just topped $5 trillion for the first time ever in November. We just got the, uh, the November data uh, this week. The, uh, there's a two-month lag in consumer debt data. It topped $5 trillion for the first time ever. So, Think about how things have played out, right? As prices skyrocketed last year, Americans blew through their savings to make ends meet. People saved a bunch of money during the pandemic. Of course, they couldn't buy anything because you couldn't go anywhere. And we were getting all these nice stimulus checks from the government. So there was a lot of savings during that period. Aggregate savings peaked at $2.1 trillion in August of 2021. As of June, June of this year, the San Francisco Fed estimated that aggregate savings had dropped to $190 billion. So in other words, if you do the math, Americans ran through $1.9 trillion in savings 
in just about two years. And then once the savings was gone, they turned to credit cards. Credit card spending. It actually slowed through last fall, but Americans burned up the plastic with the vengeance in November. We had Christmas brought to you by Visa, MasterCard, and Discover. Revolving credit, which is primarily made up of credit card debt, rose by $19.1 billion in November. That was a whopping 17.7% annual increase. To put that into some perspective, the annual increase in 2019 prior to the pandemic averaged around 3.6%. So Americans now owe just over $1.3 trillion just in revolving credit. Again, this is primarily credit card debt. But hey, this is great news. People are still spending after all. Never mind that they're paying over 20% interest on the cost of last month's groceries. Now, interestingly, if you look a little deeper into the consumer credit data, spending on big ticket items has already plunged. Non-revolving credit, which is primarily made up of auto loans, student loans, and loans for other durable goods, that rose by only $4.6 billion in November. That was a 1.5% increase, and that follows on the heels of a paltry 0.9% increase in October. On average, non-revolving debt has increased by 5% on an annual basis. So, You can see what's going on, right? The plunge in non-revolving credit indicates consumers have cut back borrowing and spending on big ticket items, things that they can put off, right? I don't have to buy a car this month. I do have to buy groceries. I do have to pay my rent, but I don't have to buy a car. So that spending is slowing down. And of course, this could signal that the economy is slipping towards a recession, even as Americans continue to run up high interest debt on their credit cards, because again, Got to buy the groceries and get gas. But, you know, according to the punditry out there, everything is fine. So, anyway, when you really parse out this data, it's not great news, right? I keep saying that. I was talking about the job numbers earlier. They really don't tell the story you keep hearing on CNBC and Fox Business. But everybody just focuses on those headline numbers. We got X number of new jobs. Yippee skippy. That's fantastic. But really, that's not even the point. Even if we take these BLS numbers, or any government numbers for that matter, at face value, and cheer because the economy created more jobs than projected, history tells us that this agency is going to revise those numbers down next month, and there's a pretty darn good chance that you know the big beat that we had in December is going to turn into a big miss when they do the revisions, but nobody will notice. Nobody's going to report on that, right? The markets only react to the initial job numbers. I mean, you never hear about a gold rally because the BLS erased a bunch of jobs from the economy with a few clicks of its calculator. The revisions always happen quietly in some dark room somewhere, right? Nobody pays much attention to them. And it creates the illusion that the labor market is much stronger than it actually is. So, I mean, why should we trust any of these numbers, much less make big decisions based on them? Again, it's important to wrap your head around the pattern that we're seeing here. This month, the government reports good news. Everybody celebrates. Markets move. The following month, the government quietly revises everything downward and reports that the good news is really bad news, and nobody pays attention. 
I don't know. It might be a good idea to pay attention to the revisions too, right? Because things just aren't nearly as rosy as the headlines would indicate. And that's really the crux of my point. That's what I'm driving at here, right? The economy is broken. They can just hide it right now. They can hide it behind spin and data and talking points. So here's another thing that I've been watching pretty closely that most people in the mainstream aren't paying a lot of attention to. Remember back in March, we had a little banking crisis, right? We had three big regional banks that went under. And when those first two, Silicon Valley Bank and and I think it was Signature Bank, when that happened, the Fed rolled out a bailout program for banks. That was in March. Well, it's November now, and banks are still borrowing money from that bailout program. In fact, they're borrowing money from that bailout program at an increasingly fast rate. Since November 19th, the amount of outstanding loans in, uh, it's called the BTFP, the amount of outstanding loans has increased by $27.3 billion. The balance in that bailout program grew by nearly $5.4 billion in just one week between December 27th and January 3rd. That data is released on Wednesday, so tomorrow we can check and see, see what happened over the past week. As of January 3rd, the balance in the BTFP stood at just over $141.2 billion. It's the largest balance in that program since it was created last March. Now, this thing's only supposed to last for a year, right? It's supposed to go away in March. And yet there's $141.2 billion in loans still outstanding. If I was a betting man, and I'm not, I'd bet dollars to donuts that that program will go on beyond March. So, isn't this a problem? I mean... Ask yourself this question. Why are banks still tapping into this bailout program 10 months after the banking crisis was supposedly fixed, right? Because every time we hear anybody at the Fed or any government official talk about the banking system, they tell you that it's sound. Banking system's great. No problem. Nothing to see here. Now, if you actually go look at what's going on with banks, things aren't really all that great. Deposits are dropping. There are billions of dollars in unrealized losses, which is why we have this bailout program in the first place. It allows banks to borrow against assets that have depreciated significantly, but they don't have to mark those assets when they're using them as collateral at their new lower value. They get to mark them at face value, which is a great deal that you and I are never going to get. But that's what we've got going on. And 10 months later, banks are still tapping into this. Now, it could be that banks are simply taking advantage of the situation and availing themselves to relatively low interest rate loans with ultra-loose collateral requirements. Or alternately, it could be that banks are still struggling in this high interest rate environment. I mean, you would expect borrowing from a bailout program to slow down considerably once the crisis passes, right? But banks never stopped tapping into the BTFP, and borrowing suddenly accelerated in November. So, I'm just going to throw this out there. 
Maybe the crisis hasn't passed. Maybe it's still bubbling under the surface. And this really drives home the point that I'm trying to make here. Whether the mainstream realizes or acknowledges it or not, the Federal Reserve is breaking things in the economy with these higher interest rates. The banking crisis last spring was the first sign of trouble, but it almost certainly won't be the last. This is a predictable consequence of the Fed raising interest rates to battle price inflation. As I said earlier, artificially low interest rates and easy money are the mother's milk of this bubble economy. With everybody from corporations to consumers, the federal government, state governments, everybody is buried in debt. This economy and the financial system simply can't function long term with high interest rates. High interest rates are the enemy of debt, right? The banking crisis earlier this year was the first thing to break as a result of rising interest rates, and I'm certain that other things will follow. I saw an article, I think it was on Zero Hedge, uh, just the other day, talking about uh, issues in the, uh, the commercial real estate market. And I think the commercial real estate market is a prime candidate for something that could break and cause a lot of problems in the financial system because there are a lot of medium-sized banks, like Silicon Valley Bank was, that are highly exposed to a lot of commercial real estate debt that is going bad. So this is just another kind of thing that's bubbling there under the surface. At some point, it's going to explode. It's just like 2008, right? 2005, 2006, everybody was all gung-ho about the housing market and the housing market was booming. And then it crashed because it was all an artificial bubble. There were all kinds of artificial bubbles in this economy right now that were caused exactly by the same thing that they did in 2005 and 2006. You know, artificially low interest rates helped blow up that housing bubble. And we've had even lower rates and more quantitative easing for a longer time since. So, you know, just kind of do the maths. The maths? No, just do one math. Do the math. So, you know, it's tempting to blame the Fed's recent rate hikes for the issues. You know, the real problem, though, it started a long time ago. It's not so much that the Fed has tried to normalize interest rates. After all, that word implies normal, right? The real problem is all of the years, the decade plus of artificially low interest rates, right? As I just alluded to, after the Great Recession, Federal Reserve policy intentionally incentivized borrowing to stimulate the economy. It cut rates to zero. It launched three rounds of quantitative easing. And then after an unsuccessful attempt to normalize interest rates and shrink its balance sheet back in 2018, which most people don't even remember, the Fed doubled down on easy money policies during the pandemic. I'm pretty convinced that the pandemic kind of saved the Fed's and the government's bacon because we were creeping towards a recession in 2018. Fed was trying to normalize rates. It wasn't working. They had already gone back to quantitative easing before the pandemic. The pandemic allowed them to just go all in on money creation. And I think that blew up the bubbles even bigger and kind of kept things limping along. It prevented that recession that was on the horizon in 2018. 
But, of course, all of this monetary inflation inevitably led to price inflation. And, of course, they tried to tell you it was transitory for a while. Well, first they tried to tell you it didn't even exist. Then they told you it was transitory. And then when they couldn't do that anymore, it forced the Fed to raise interest rates. Now, the central bank, it appears, has cooled price inflation, at least for now. But it also broke some banks. So, in effect, the Fed managed to paper over the financial crisis that it created with the bailout program basically slapped a Band-Aid on things, but it has not addressed the underlying issue, and that is the impact of rising interest rates in an economy and financial system that's addicted to easy money, that's loaded up with debt. And Here's something that I think hangs a lot of people up. You know, we live in a microwave society, right? Everything is on a like a 24-hour news cycle. And really, it's almost a 30-minute news cycle today. Everybody kind of just expects things to happen instantaneously. And historical context tends to go back about two weeks, right? So, in most people's minds, the Fed raised rates. Nothing bad happened. Well, we had this little banking thing, but they fixed that. So, it's fine. But if you travel back to the deep, dark past of 2006, you'll see that the economy doesn't respond to monetary policy, you know, like a a speedboat turning on a dime. It's more like a giant ship that takes a while to turn. So, do you know when interest rates peaked prior to the 2008 financial crisis? Interest rates actually peaked in the middle of 2006. The Fed was already cutting rates in 2007. The actual financial crisis didn't kick off until the fall of 2008. So, just because the Fed raised interest rates last year and nothing has happened yet, it doesn't mean nothing is going to happen. Just like the fact that I drove for months with a broken radiator fan didn't mean my car was fine. So, here's the good news. You still have time to get your financial house in order. Time is on your side for now, and this is a great time to give the folks over at Money Metals a call. You can just dial 800-800-1865, and you can talk to folks there and kind of figure out how can precious metals fit into your investment portfolio? How can owning precious metals help protect you from what the Fed is clearly doing to the economy, and to our money. Given that the economy isn't fine and inflation isn't beat, because as I talked about last week, as soon as the Fed tries to say it has victory over inflation, that means it's going back to creating more inflation. So inflation isn't really beat, not in the long run. Might not be a bad idea to have precious metals in your portfolio. Did you know that gold has actually outperformed the S&P 500 during this century. I wrote an article about it. Uh, I'll, we'll link to it in the show notes page. Also, silver, very undervalued right now given the supply and demand dynamics. Uh, the Silver Institute projects that silver actually set a record in 2023 for industrial demand. And while overall demand is down a little bit from 2022, which was a record year, it's still historically high. And we're seeing a large deficit in the silver market. Silver's not priced for that. So, right now, you've got silver on sale. You've got gold, I think, under 
$2,050 an ounce under $2,100 an ounce, I think it's still a buying opportunity. So talk to the folks over at Money Metals today and uh, yeah, do it. So that is a wrap for this episode of Money Metals Midweek Memo. You can get more information about the things that I've talked about today and more over at moneymetals.com slash news. If you want to get the latest news right in your email box, make sure you sign up for our email list. And of course, you can subscribe to the Midweek Memo on your favorite podcasting platform. Make sure you tune in to our Market Wrap podcast every Friday. And you can contact me, Mike.Mahari. That's Mike.M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y at MoneyMetals.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you have a great rest of your week.